Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Allabest. And today I am joined by my amazing friend, someone you are so dear to me, Stacey. Yes, we know how to do it. The one, the only, the incredible Stacey Harkey. Yeah, my name is Stacey Harkey. I was part of a sketch comedy group called Studio C out, a company called JK Studios. So I do comedy. But I also have the utmost privilege of being black and gay in America, living in Utah. And I do personal training things. And so I've been working with Amy and her family. We've had the chance to go really close and share a lot of experiences. So I feel so honored that you have invited me to talk so vulnerably about the topic we're talking about today. I'm so excited. Don't judge me. No, <laughs> don't judge me either. No, that's like actually... This all this stuff will come up right in the conversation. So excited! So yeah, we met initially because we were on the same panel, actually about racism and sexism and homophobia. So actually, this is a full circle moment for a right. Are we talking about homophobia too? We did a little bit. You talk about it today? No, but that but we were talking about sexism and racism, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. But yeah, we met like maybe two years ago in that context. And then just kind of emailed after that. And then I was like, wait, you're a trainer. And then, yeah, he started training my family. So you're like, we call you Uncle Stacy. Oh, I love your kids. And I guess I should say that, like, I'm very involved to the degree I can in, like, social activism. Yeah. I guess I, I speak at different places. I, I work with Equality Utah, which is an LGBTQ nonprofit that's working to further the rights of queer community in Utah and create, you know, connection and build bridges. And so... I'm not just like, I work out and crack jokes. <laughs> uh, that's a huge part of my life, though. <laughs> no, you're a renaissance man and you're involved in so many different things. It's true. But and we talk about all that stuff when we hang out. Actually, it was, yeah, and we hang out a lot, which is great. And our conversations are often like super lighthearted and uh, funny and then sometimes really neat. Yeah, we like oscillate between. Yeah. Which I think it's going to happen today. And I think it will. I think it will. If all those is according to plan. But yeah, one of those conversations kind of led to this because we were talking about, yeah, the intersections of sexism and racism and how Bell Hooks has a quote that she says that white women and black men both find themselves in a position of oppressor and oppressed. Wow. Depending on the context, right? Yeah, and I think that's kind of tricky sometimes because I, as we like, especially like the social activism field, we're always like, okay, who's oppressed and like, who's this? And it it sometimes feels like it needs to be like black and white, <laughs> pun intended. So I think it's really interesting to to like wade into this like nuance and it feels a little scary because what is that going to say about me? Or what is that? How is that going to reflect me or you? Or I don't know, you know? And yeah, and there's all the levels too of like politically and then that's hard in really close relationships because when an offense happens, there is so much on the line. There's so much to lose, right? And actually, that's going to be, I wasn't even planning it, but that is literally the topic today. Because as we were talking about these white women and black men being in the role of oppressed and oppressor, I'm like, oh, that's literally the topic of my master's thesis that I wrote. And so then we're like, wait, what if we talked about that on the podcast? And it was great, too, because I know so little about so much in the civil rights movement, which is like embarrassing to say. You know, but also like just honest, I know so little that I feel like this has been really interesting and I feel like I'm like learning so much. Mm-hmm. Which helps now I like show up. And me too. I didn't know anything about any of this until I was lucky enough to take a class on it, then wrote a paper and then 
in that paper wanted to dig deeper. So now I know a lot about it, but it's only been in my 40s. I didn't learn this stuff in school. We're not taught it. And so like we can't blame ourselves for not knowing it, but this will hopefully give listeners and viewers some kind of inroads and some points of contact of like, oh my gosh, I want to learn more about this. And maybe we'll list some additional books and resources for people who want to dig in more. Yeah. So people, I think it's I think it's good to note too that it wasn't just like you were like taking a fun class and wrote a quick paper. Like you you worked on this paper for over a year, a year of like intense research, deep diving, digging. I can't even imagine what you felt. So like this is like a thoroughly researched topic that you've like approached. So this isn't just like like you're not in high school like writing like you know like a paper. <laughs> This is like you, you like uncovered documents that one like, at least to me, seems lost. So I don't know. Thank that- you. I did. And it, it was a lot of work. Thanks. And it was super gratifying and personally meaningful. So, so yeah, we'll use this. Thank you. Thanks. Um, yeah, we'll use this kind of this story that I think is such an important story and I had not heard anything about. We'll use this story as kind of the frame of our conversation and kind of like, the uh, kind of like a chronological timeline that we'll follow, but then we'll drop into whatever issues, like things that come up for you. Just say them and we'll just talk about it. Because they'll come up. Yeah. Even the teeny bit, I was like, feelings. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I cried as I was rereading it. I'm so nervous and excited. I'm nervous. There's a plot twist, y'all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There will be plot twists. Yeah. So we should say from the outside, like Stacey said, I researched this maybe more like two years. So I do know a lot about it, but you dropped in and like read a bunch on some different topics, but then you asked me to not like give all the spoilers, right? I wanted wanted to be surprised. Yeah. (laughs) It's like history and I'm like, Martin Luther, who did what? Yeah, that's right. Oh my gosh. Okay, well, so then I'll just start telling the story and then you you ask questions and we'll just go bad at night. And if you're like, let me finish the sentence. Okay. If I already, I'm already excited to be like, and vice versa. If I just start going too deep or too long, then just be sucked come in. back. There's gonna be a screen still of us. Just like, okay. <laughs> okay, okay. We could start the story in so many different places, okay. but I think an interesting way of starting it is at the end, and then we'll circle back to the beginning. How's that? It's very like Christopher Nolan. Of, yeah, I love it. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so I'll paint this picture for you. It's 1964. Okay, we're in Waveland, Mississippi. Okay, so picture that segregation, super, super, very, very, very heightened tensions. It's really, really dangerous to be a social activist that's fighting for racial justice at the time. Okay, There's a group that is like one of the major groups of the civil rights movement called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Okay. SNCC. SNCC. S-N-C-C. You know about SNCC. And SNCC has gotten together to have a conference. And SNCC is a super democratic branch of the civil rights movement. And you hear it's the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So these are young people. It's like young adults. Young adults. Yeah. Some of them are teenagers and then some in their like mid-20s. And they're getting together for this conference because they're at a crossroads. Things are going not very well. And so because they're so democratic, um, they invite people to write Kind of like they can write grievances or they can write like, here's what's going well. Here's what's not going well and suggestions and stuff. Like a little suggestion box. Kind of. Yeah, totally. Okay. Yes. So they could be short or they could be whole essays or whatever. And you can put your name on it or you can write it anonymously. And then the whole group reads it and discusses it. Out loud. Out loud. Okay, cool. Exactly. So 
the night before the conference starts, so everybody's working on their papers or they're chatting by the campfire or whatever, whatever they're doing, four women get together and we have the records of this so we know some of the details. They're sneaking to go into the place where the mimeograph machine is. I did not know what that was. Yeah, what started? It's like a Xerox machine, but from the 60s. So before Xerox was invented. So to, to make copies quickly. So there's this little room that they were using and they sit at a typewriter and they type out this manifesto of sorts. It's it, it So all these papers were called position papers. Like, here's my position on this topic. Gotcha. So they title it position paper number 24 and they don't sign their names. It's anonymous. Okay. And they write a list of grievances of the way that they were being treated as women in SNCC. Oh, they slip it into the pile of papers and then they run back to their bed so no one would know. And then the next day... As giving like, who put Harry Potter name in the gauntlet of soccer? <laughs> Why did I not think of that to you? I'm like ruining your spy bag. <laughs> When you fought but like snuck in and like, so and Dumbledore's like, what is it? Okay, wow. Exactly right. So the next day, everybody's reading the position papers. They read, you know, each of them in succession. Everybody discusses that. And when they get to position paper number 24, we don't know what anybody said about it, except a very sexist joke was made later about it. That's what that's what we have on the record. What? Yes. That's what you have on the record. That's what we have on the record. What a time to be alive. Right. <laughs> That law we have. Yes. So the women's grievances are read out loud. We know that. We know that people didn't know who had written it. And that's all we know. And then it just kind of like falls into obscurity. It's not mentioned again. This is not a famous paper until... Wait, no one talked about it in the moment? They no, just read it. We don't have a record. We have no record. We don't know when people learned who had written it. We don't know... Yeah, we don't know if it was discussed at all. All we know is that... Okay, I'll just tell the joke. All we know is... I'm going to tell it now in case we forget. Okay. What if it's funny? I'm sorry. No, it's smart. Uh, you I can get the judge. React however you react. Okay. Okay. So, so Stokely Carmichael, and I don't know if listeners know who Stokely Carmichael is, but you should look him up. It's a very, very, very famous civil rights activist. He's the first person to utter the phrase black power. He's like the father of the Black Power movement. He's the one who shifted SNCC from being, at the beginning, their emblem, their motto was a black hand and a white hand together clasped. It, that's how SNCC started in 1960. By 1966, Stokely Carmichael is leading a march and he says Black Power and the whole the crowd hears him and starts saying Black Power, Black Power. It shifts toward Black Panthers. Snake dissolved, and that comes later. That's who Snokey, Stokely Carmichael is. Is that, did what happened that day contribute to that? That's one way of reading it. It wasn't by any means the biggest thing, but it was, it happened at a very pivotal moment where Snake just started to dissolve. But we'll get to that later. So he's in SNCC. Mm. This is before it shifted to Black Power. They're still like really trying to work together, black and white together. They go out to the dock that night. Everybody's exhausted. They've been reading these position papers all day. So I'm just going to say what we have accounts of. So we know, like, I'm not, this is just yeah. not just conjecture and I'm painting a picture or whatever. 
We know they were on a dock. We know that there were some white vigilantes nearby. I actually knew this because I got to do some original interviews with some of the people who were there. Aren't and they told me things. No, they told me things that weren't even in books. Okay, mind-blowing because the fact that you interviewed actual people in those moments, this feels like, I'm like, oh, maybe my great-great-grandma was around, but this is not long ago. They're not even old. They're not elderly sitting in wheelchairs. Like some of them have started to pass away. But no, these women are still working. They're still making films. They're like in their early 70s, some of them. Yeah, this is- I remember this experience too. Ooh, that's, that's something. Yes. Anyway, they're sitting on the dock. They're heads in each other's laps. They're like hugging, laying down together. Like you can picture this group of people that are so close, despite the tensions that have started to, you know, started to arise. Stokely gets up and they're talking about the position papers, right? And their paper was, I, I guess maybe at the title, it was like, what is the position of women in SNCC, right? And it's yeah. a position paper. So Stokely gets up and he's like, what is the position of women in SNCC? The position of women in SNCC is prone. So, yeah. So that's the joke. It's so like a sexual position. Yeah. yeah. You didn't know. Okay, so yeah. No, yeah. I'm just always scared. You're like, you, I'm like, what do you think it's like? Delicious? We all have these like isms in us that like, yeah, we're gonna be like, what if I laugh? And yeah, it's funny. Okay, so everybody That's said, well, yeah, everybody said at the time, and we live in a different time. Everybody said they laughed, like everybody died laughing. One woman who was there was like, "That's not funny." Everybody else, including the women, maybe because it was like releasing the tension. I don't know. I don't need to give them benefit of the doubt or condemn them either way. Here's what happened. That's what happened. If you Google Stokely Carmichael, and this is somewhat not fair to him because he was such an important leader, but if you Google him and just click images, that joke is what comes up more than anything else. So that's almost... Can you imagine being remembered? I know. It's kind of not... I don't know. Again, I, I'm not actually even going to say an opinion on it. That's just... I feel like this is like a theme happened. of like nuance that we're waiting in. Totally. Totally. Okay. So basically, after that, everything's forgotten, including the joke for a long time. People don't even remember it. But earlier in SNCC 2, there had been a sit-in against sexism. And people just kind of knew that. Nobody was writing it down or anything. So just to clarify, yeah. Nick unified and they're like hey we're gonna fight against sexism together N- or this happened racism in the or, or sorry only racism uh, only racism so the sit-in against sexual harassment was within snick or within they did SNCC. it like oh i see what you're asking yeah yes like, no were they like hey snick get your stuff together or was it like snick banded together and was like we're taking this out okay okay so we'll pause here because this is important too so a couple years earlier in a different snick office so snick had offices all through the south right And in one little office, I think it was their Atlanta office, there were like four or five women working with the head of SNCC, Jim Foreman. Okay. And when he came back one day, they were sitting there and they had made posters. And guess what else? This was such a cool moment in my research. I just happened to be reading somebody who mentioned that they had a picture of it. And I was like, there's a picture of this. And there was, and I ended up finding it. So maybe we'll put it on the video. I'll it Oh my gosh. I got addicted to being a historian when I was doing this process. There's a picture of it. Somebody thought to take a picture. And it's just like four or five women saying like, we won't do any work until we're treated fairly. Because they were having to do all the regular work the men were doing, but also like typing up the notes and cleaning. 
mimeographing, exactly, cleaning, bringing people coffee, whatever they're like. Within SNCC. Within SNCC. Like six people were there and it was in SNCC. So here's what I'm saying. Of the gender stuff that happened in SNCC, there was this urban legend that this sit-in had happened and that there had been a feminist manifesto written. Nobody knew what it was. There were not copies of it. But later when the women's live movement started taking off in like the early 70s, people were like, wait a second, what started this? And of course, everybody thinks of the Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, okay. this book, and the before that, The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir. Like, there's these big books that started changing culture and helping women wake up and seeing patriarchy and whatever. But, like, a small handful of white scholars were like, but wait a second, there was that sit-in in SNCC, and wait a second, there was a feminist manifesto. So they're like, oh, it must be because SNCC was so sexist that it made the women wake up to their own oppression and they got trained in activism by being civil rights workers then they go north and they're like now we're going to use our civil rights training to work for the rights of women in the women's lib movement so they start digging they find a copy of the position paper 24 the manifesto the manifesto and there was a second one that was written the next year, 1965, and they find that. Okay. And they're, they like hold it up as like, yeah, the black men were so sexist. Here's where the race in this, this right? Because it was all black men that they were accusing. Because why did this um, like originate in SNCC? Which yeah. Which be fighting for the rights of people. Right. And so it was like indicative because obviously SNCC was such a horrible environment for women. Exactly. That they had to start there. Right. And that is true, not true. So that's like kind of the topic of the whole story. So should we start at the beginning? Mm. Grab a blanket and cuddle yeah. up with a mug of something warm. Okay, we're diving in. <laughs> okay. And and again, like, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Partly, you grew up in the South. I did. Yeah. I did. I grew up in the South. And it's interesting, even some of the little snippets I read before, I was finding myself getting emotionally invested in like, I don't want to use the term triggered as much as I was having strong feelings. And I was like, oh, I've had experiences along these lines of white women, black men, how we interact and correlate and like navigate change together. Okay. So where should we start? Back at the, yeah. Where do we start? Like, I don't even know where we're going back to. Well, should we start at the founding of SNCC? Maybe we should do that. Yeah. And this is something you know about, too, with Ella Baker. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah. kind of like, I feel like the question is, that I have is, why did this happen in SNCC and what were the ramifications? And like, what is SNCC at this time and like, where, how did this contribute to a good movement? But yeah, like, is it, yeah, yeah I just, I'm curious about SNCC and like the evolution. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let's start with Ella Baker then. Okay. And as you know, Ella Baker was born in, I think, 1903. So she was an older lady at the time that this was happening. And the way this happened is she was working at the SCLC, which was the Southern Christian Leadership Conference okay. with Martin Luther King. King's exactly. Like the big, that's what we all know and hear about. Yes. So crew. Yeah. That thing. Okay, cool. That's that thing. And she had been hired by King and Baird Rustin. Baird. Yeah. We talked to her. There was a, a queer black activist who was like fundamental to like the civil rights movement a lot of it exactly behind the scenes totally yeah like he planned the march on washington like he was the mastermind behind that hashtag i relate yeah 
It's important to see yourself represented. <laughs> totally, totally, exactly. Yeah. So Dr. King and Bayard Rustin, basically Bayard Rustin hired Ella Baker and Dr. King was pretty skeptical about it. Really? Yeah. He didn't know her? He didn't know her. And here's the thing about Dr. King. I feel like some tea's coming. No, I mean, well, and this is, again, this is like the irony. Again, of a white woman criticizing. I actually feel like a little bit, I feel uncomfortable as a white woman criticizing a black man. I do. Like in the context of this paper, and I'll stop here too and say like when I contacted these black women to interview them, they, without exception, they were all very skeptical and like, why? Why do you want to interview me? And like, what is the angle that you're going to try to like besmirch the the people who did all these things in the civil rights movement and like all the work we did yes interesting and and specifically the work that that black men did in the movement because they're used to that and i'm like criticize a black man but martin luther king yeah exists as like an icon and like an you know like a hero yeah deservedly in my opinion like if there's such thing as prophets i believe dr king was a prophet like i really do but what ella baker said about him because she did join the SCLC, but they they just, for example, they like interviewed her and then they just put her on the books without even extending an offer to her. Oh, like, make, They weren't like, hey, do you want to work with us? They were you're on. Yeah. So she felt a little bit patronized by that. And then there was that quote that you and I were talking about before where it was like, who was I to them? I was old. I didn't have a PhD. You know, she was just like, she felt very disrespected. Ella Baker had been working in the civil rights movement for decades already. She was like this wise, wise woman. She wasn't even old either. She was like, well, at the time, 1960. So she's in her 50s, yeah. right? That blows my mind that of the list of things she, reasons she gives for why they, she didn't feel as respected. Old was one of them. Which you feel like, I feel like that should give her more, like credentials, was like, yeah. more credence. But instead it was like, like, I it just, I feel like it figures into like how, We've been conditioned to value women mm-hmm. and like age and youthful. It's like, that's so interesting to me. Totally. So like you're not cute enough to make change happen in the government or whatever. It's like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, they needed somebody to run the mimeograph machine was another thing that she said. So she knew, she knew her worth. It was kind of tongue in cheek, these comments, but she realized she was being like really underutilized in the SCLC. She's like, I'm way overqualified for this. And, you know, they'd make decisions without her. She wouldn't be invited to the meetings. And she's like, it was just, she talks about the the male minister's ego of like, you're used to being in the front and having a whole congregation saying amen and hallelujah to everything you say. And he was gaining a lot of, you know, popularity and notoriety. He was a big deal. He was a big deal. And I, she respected him very much, but he certainly did not treat women as equal. Interesting. And so is this kind of like some of the first accounts of this imbalance, power balance, or like sexism in like this movement that is trying so hard to create like a grounds of equality racially? Is that kind of where we see it enter? I mean, that's where I saw it enter because that was the specific, you know, moment that I was studying. I have like, if you look at Polly Murray, she's another one to look at. She wrote a lot about this and she was not quite as old as Ella Baker, but they were friends before they were doing sit-ins and desegregating buses in the 40s before anybody was doing it they were already doing it and Polly Murray like didn't get into Harvard because they're like sorry you're a woman and anyway so this had been going on for a while but this is yeah this is some of the early stuff so anyway Ella Baker is ready to leave the SCLC 
And at this moment, in early 1960, you have the lunch counter sit-ins in Greensboro. Okay. So everybody can picture that. We do learn about that in school, at least. Yeah, pictures. Right. Black and white pictures. Yes. People sitting at the counter and people yelling at them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So these are college students. And they're starting to organize in, you know, in, all across the South. And Greensboro is the one that's more, most, you know, famous or whatever. Right. But it's spreading like wildfire. Everybody's hearing about it. So the older guard, like the SCLC, is hearing about like, oh, my gosh, the young people are taking things into their own hands, which we've seen that in our lifetime too, a little know. bit, right? It's like that vitality, that energy, almost that like youthful brashness. Yes. Like, cool. Exactly. Exactly. So they're like, we got to get in on this and like harness this. This is so great because they had already been working. But there's this new movement and Dr. King wants to bring them in under the umbrella of the SCLC, okay. where he's kind of the head honcho and he's going to be in charge. They have this structure, they have this organization. Yeah. Come work for us, bring that energy, let us harness it and guide you kind of thing. Exactly. Okay. And Ella Baker says, actually, no, I don't think there should be a leader. She's like, she's an anti-hierarchy person. She's a democracy person. Interesting. Which makes sense because someone who had experienced hierarchy in so many platforms, whether it's racially or through, you know, gender, like through sex, it's like you probably are like the value in having everyone's voice be heard is might be a little more important to you. Yeah. Interesting. That's a good insight. Yeah. That's definitely true. So Ella Baker convenes a conference Mm -hmm. at her alma mater, Shaw University in North Carolina. And it's on Easter weekend in 1960. She gathers all the students and says, listen, you guys are amazing. You're doing amazing things. You should get organized. How do you want this to take shape? And Dr. King gets up and talks and he's like, come to the LCLC. And then you have records of students who were there who listened to them both speak. And they're they're like, when Ella Baker got up to talk, she wasn't saying don't go with Dr. King, but she was saying don't go with Dr. King. <laughs> so she the Martin Luther King. The Martin Luther King. Yeah, yeah. So she says, no, you you know, you really have the ability to just govern yourselves. And you can do this with a really flat democratic structure. You don't need a leader. Strong people don't need strong leaders. And so the students voted and they voted to do their own thing. So, so SNCC stayed separate from the SCLC. Yes, they worked together, but they, and they worked with lots of different kind of like thinking of it as branches of the civil rights movement. And they would work in concert with one another, but they had their own branch. Gotcha. They had their own branch and they had an executive director. But Ella Baker was always just in the role of a mentor. And she didn't like it when people would call her the founder. She said, I'm the godmother of something. Oh. She just is not a hierarchy person. And so... And everybody loved her, no matter what happened. She was like the, just this really warm, nurturing, but very smart and very experienced, kind of, again, not a matriarch, because there's no archie, but she was just this resource to them. Stokely Carmichael, like there's pictures of him and some other people like weeping at her funeral. She just was so, so important to everybody. I think that's so interesting to see that like, these movements, you know, like almost like the things like Dr. King says, we have, we almost like regard them like scripture. We post about them for the holiday. We sit with them. They have like a lot of meaning and they mean a lot. And he did so much, but he wasn't like perfect or the movement wasn't perfect. It wasn't like, this is the way for us to reach harmony and perfection. It was just like a step, albeit one that still had like a lot of flaws within it. Interesting. Yeah. That feels like 
almost wrong to say, you know? Yeah. It's like to say that, are we like, I, I don't know, it almost feels like I have to be like, is it bad or yeah. good? And that is just not how people or history is. And so this is my first taste of like, hey, Stace, wade into the nuance. Can something be good and have problems? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. And again, to criticize Dr. King, I, I want to establish again, like I, I do think he had incredible courage to do what he was put on this earth to do. And the movement wouldn't have done what it did without him. Mm. So utmost respect for all of the good he did. And I do hold him in the highest regard. And like you said, we talk about this all the time too, you and I, like about nuance, right? And about being able to hold multiple truths mm-hmm. at the same time. And they don't negate each other. They just all are. They just are. And I think this is a good time to, if you're looking for who's right and wrong in the situation, this may not be the episode for you. Yeah. Because we are not here to say bad, good. We're here to like explore this topic and then make it relevant to us, like see how it relates to us now, right? Yeah. And let's make sure to do that. So let's remind each other at the end to to at least kind of hint at the through line that really has impacted things through to this day. So let's not let each other forget. Um, That's so interesting that Ella Baker didn't like stand up and say, we got to stop Dr. King because he's yeah. doing these things. Why not? Because she didn't believe that, at least what I'm recalling. And for people who are interested in digging into this more, there's a wonderful biography of her by Barbara uh, Ransby. Great biography. So, no, I think she definitely knew that King was so necessary and was doing what he was supposed to do. But I think she just saw real potential for these students to govern themselves. So, interestingly, when she starts SNCC, um, what I'm remembering too, the very first person that she brings on is a white woman, much younger, Jane Stembridge. And so right from the very beginning, from the birth of SNCC, you have black and white together with those hands, right? And they very famously, they had all of these beautiful songs and hymns and they would sing, we shall overcome all the time. And one of the verses that I didn't know until I was researching this is there's a verse, of, I'm going to get choked up. There's a verse, there's lots of verses to we shall overcome. And one of them is black and white together, black and white together. And if you hear it sound like it's... Yep. Oh, interesting. Yep. That was SNCC. And so what you have is, I believe it was at the beginning, 80% black. And again, mostly students within a bunch of mentors, like adult mentors who were helping them. And they're organizing doing things like desegregating buses like the Freedom Rides. Mm-hmm. Um, where like interstate buses were were segregated and just to desegregate them you just have all you do is just sit on the bus in a group like i can do that crushing yeah but when they would arrive sometimes at the bus stop there would be mobs of white men waiting for them at the bus stops with baseball bats john lewis who got a time for that like back in the day it was like oh my god the negroes were at the bus again let's let's get our baseball bat like those jobs like wow serious it's wild no that it yeah it was really bad and these and snick went to the places where it was the worst like mississippi like rural rural deep south yeah john lewis at one point like got his head smashed in and, and cracked his head there are pictures of like people just bleeding in fact diane nash who was just this young like early 20s woman would stand by the buses and she had people sign their wills before they got in these buses. There's a real danger that they would be killed. It was that dangerous. So just to sit on a bus together, they were risking their lives. The other danger was 
you could get roughed up at the sit-in, for example. But then the danger also was when the police showed up. These are white supremacist police who would take you to jail and they would often get beaten in jail. They would beat the women in jail. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, not every time. No, but like there are accounts of that. Oh, yes. It's not like a, they're just beating up people who aren't resisting. It's like that, everyone. It was a real man. Pregnant. Pregnant. Like senior citizens, like young women, everyone's getting beat up. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Just for, and you think of this, like this is a, America. Like we have a right to assembly. We have a right to free speech. That's in our constitution. So this is unconstitutional oppression. I just kept... As I was reading it, I'm like, this is, it's not legal. You can't take someone to jail for peacefully sitting in a chair. And yet they did. They just completely flagrantly disregarded the values that our country was founded on, a peaceful demonstration. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Okay, so that's where we're seeing with SNCC right now. Yeah. It was like, in the midst of this movement, they're black and white together, making change, taking chances. Everyone's taking risks, men and women, black and white. Yep, all okay. together. Wow. Okay, so SNCC is killing it, civil rights movement, super successful. We see the results now. So, like, it sounds like everything was perfect. Yeah. And in many ways, it was like, you see accounts of, that people wrote in their journals of, like, it's as close to almost like a utopia as you could have. Like, there was really so much love. So much love. But there were little like fissures that were starting to form like cracks. You know what I mean? What? Well, one thing that caught my attention was in the essays that black women wrote when they said like, what got you involved in the civil rights movement? They would say, my grandmother was enslaved. My parents were sharecroppers. And that just struck me as like, they see themselves as just a point on a timeline, like they could have just said, I joined SNCC in 1961 when I was at, you know, Shaw University or whatever. It started with they're enslaved. And again, like that's that's the thing, as close as we are, because you're like, whoa, they're not even old. We're so close to them. Mm -hmm. That's true. They also were so close. Ella Baker was born like less than 30 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. She was raised by a woman who had been enslaved. Holy so that's how close we are to it. I can't fathom. It's unbelievable. So that's one thing I was like, oh, these black women are talking like we're talking right now to their white sisters and brothers and whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're hugging each other. But they in their minds, in their bodies are carrying things that they wouldn't know to say or they wouldn't say to anybody. But that's what they're approaching this situation with. Meanwhile... White women are coming to it with completely different lived experiences, right? Completely different. And I was like, I wonder if that's one thing that contributed is just they came to each other like, oh, we're all in this together. And then realized like, wait, why are you doing that? Because of their different backgrounds. It's like this, just the information that I, I can relate. Like I think about in the midst of like George Floyd and like the notoriety of Black Lives Matter growing, right? I sat and thought a lot because there were so many frustrations I had with like white people who were like wanting to help and do the work. And I kind of settled with the concept where it's like, I felt my dad has stories of being roughhoused and thrown around by police. 
my grandma has stories of having to hide and navigate, you know, just like being a single mother in the South or even the Midwest. And so I think about a lot of the crap that we're dealing with. And I, I kind of feel like I inherited like fine China, like it was something that was handed down and down and it becomes, it just like amasses. There's like so much pain and experience behind it. And it's so fragile. No, none of my boyfriends could really understand that. And meantime, it felt like they were also like stepping into it for the first time. And I'd been sitting with this generational piece of pain for like my whole life. So like, I totally see that like concept of like, we want the same thing, but there are some big feels and experiences that can't be just shared through a little conversation or, or how would people know, you know? Wait, so that reminds me, because you grew up in Texas again. So your dad, when was he born? He was born in, he's like 60. Okay. Well, did he experience segregation? Yeah, actually, he was bust. It was in Oklahoma, and his parents were educators. So my grandma was a teacher. Her dad was a principal, and he was like started the first school for black people in this area because the schools that black people would go to were so far. So my dad and his brothers and siblings went to the school and then they started integrating schools. And so busted my dad and some friends to white schools. And they said it was like incredibly, my dad's such a positive person. He was like, you know, we made the most. And once we were on the football team, people are nicer to us. But he said like, they had to really stick together. And that's like my dad's lifetime. And that cuckoo bananas. Yeah. It's wild. It is. I never really realized how hard it would be for those kids to like, there's, and some black scholars at the time were like, we don't want our children to have to go integrate and like be bused into racist white schools are going to get bullied. That's going to be terrible. We should just stay with our own communities. And I see that's like already complexity. That's like a conversation to have with other black people about like integration, like there is this concept, and I think it might come up as we talk more. And I realized it when I was having a conversation with a white friend about this. Like, it was actually like a situation that went down in like pop culture. And you were going about it so passionately from like slightly different angles. And what I realized is the angle at which I was looking at it is like, like protecting the individual. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we go about it to protect the individual? And they were going about it where how do we enact? positive change overall we kind of wanted the same thing of like overall safety so when you look at busing for example you're like we need to integrate society how are we going to you know put a dent in racism if we don't even interact with people who are different than us if we keep it separated and that's from the angle of like society needs to change become better but on one end i look at it and i say can you imagine the danger who wants to sacrifice their kid who wants to say, okay, yes, we need to integrate. So I want to put my child into the most hostile environment for the greater good of white people. Right. And hopefully black people too. But I think at a point, black people were like, we want the same opportunities. We don't want to be treated poorly. And so I look at this thing where it's like, yes, change society, make the world better. We need to do that. But also I'm like, but what about the individuals? What about your personal safety? Thinking of my dad or like a family member, my little sister, we grew up in, I graduated from a town called Little Elm in Texas. In 2006 is when I graduated. She's younger than me. She was verbally tortured. 
um, in school, in church, in the South, in Texas. She was made fun of for being black. She was just like, this is like in our day and age, right? And it was probably so important for some people to have interactions with a black woman, but also like the crap my little sister went through. And so, yeah, you know what I mean? Like the nuance of like society needs to change, but why does the burden have to fall on like vulnerable yep. populations already? Yeah, totally. It's complex. Yeah. That was a huge tangent. No, it's that's actually not a tangent at all. And um, that was something I learned Again, like for you, you learned it in your life, but like from your lived experience and for me, it was in a book, but I was surprised to read about a lot of black SNCC students, volunteers whose families like disowned them when they joined SNCC. They were like, first of all, yeah, you're putting yourself in danger. And also like we worked so hard for you to go to college so that you could have a good life and just like buy a house, buy a car and carve out a good life. Things are getting better. And if they went to SNCC, sometimes they dropped out of college. And so they're like, we worked for you to go to college. Like, what are you doing? And also like, you're getting arrested. Are you kidding me? Keep yourself safe. Keep yourself safe. You know, like I'm trying to change the world, but it's like at the world that doesn't even like you, keep yourself safe. Exactly. But I mean, like, I don't know. I feel like it's just like that complexity, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Of like, oh, Oh, really yeah. hard. If your daughter was like, mom, I'm going to go to this thing where I might die. Yeah. What would you, you would probably be like, I, it's, it's so noble, but would you also be like, let somebody else you do doing? that. What the, yeah. No, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's complex. It's, complex. it's really, really hard. So I can, I can hundred percent, like if I, listen, like, you know, talking about your kids, more nieces or nephews or something, I'm like, No. Like, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. That's from the personal safety aspect. And yeah, yeah. That's, that's tough. Yeah. Those snake students. Yeah. Probably helps them from the fully prefrontal cortex. Yeah, right? It's like jumping into those situations. Well, yeah. It's like the best heroes. They Right, exactly. Yeah. They weren't just jumping in. As maybe as scared as they would be if they had been older. But yeah, so, so courageous. Okay, so you like mentioned these fissures, but like what are some of these experiences like black women white women were bringing to these tables like where were these tensions yeah so that yeah one of them like we talked about was their the legacy of enslavement that some of them literally had come from sharecropping families and the like the people that they had been raised by or at the very least their grandparents could tell stories of enslavement you know um so they were bringing that another thing was the legacy of like segregation and lynching and a lot of black women brought up, they said we were the Emmett Till generation. Right? So they... Yes. Because I heard a lot of people had, I think I read in your paper, a lot of people had like pictures of Emmett Till. Like it was like a huge thing for them. You get like kids growing up in George Floyd and being like aware of, or, or you know, I, I imagine if you're white and you're like seeing that for the first time, you're like mobilized or black and it feels like the final straw. Yeah. Where you're like, oh, it's got to change. I'm going to get, you know. Yeah, that's a good comparison, I think, to compare to George Floyd, because it was that huge, huge moment, because I know you know this, but for for listeners, when Emmett Till was murdered, his mother chose to publish the photos of his body in Jet magazine so that it could be seen. And so that was why it became such a moment, because 
this happened all the time. Lynchings happened all the, the time, as you know. But they said we were the Emmett Till generation. They were little kids. And so, like you said, like the awareness of like it, these were formative years of them learning how the world is. Right. And and they talked about their parents like hiding the magazine so their kids wouldn't see it because it would be so disturbing to them and so sad like just knowing that they had those memories right and like just kind of like eavesdropping while all the adults were talking mm-hmm. about it and that Emmett Till's murder again obviously this was an act of violence by a white woman a white woman got this black boy murdered and so I would imagine that that would impact the way they saw white women is anything coming up for you I'm just thinking of like the power that like I mean I see I feel like we see that in the news a lot I think of like black guy was like bird watching at the park yeah and the white lady had her dog running around and he was like hey she it's like the park rules be on the leash scaring birds she was like trying to call the police on her it is like such a tie to like Emmett Till of like weaponizing your like seen as like being weak or weaponizing like black men seen as being like you know monsters I I think I was talking about this earlier. Like I am like this 10 year old gay kid growing up. No one knew I was gay back then. I assume. Um, and I had a white girl claim I like assaulted her. And it was like a huge deal at my school. I was like in sixth grade and she was like, he, he sexually assaulted me. And I didn't even know what terms were back then. My dad had to be at the school, like conversations with the principal and their compromise was for me to be expelled. That was the best case scenario. And that's like, yeah. And that's like, oh that's like my history of someone just claiming something and being like, of course, this young black vagrant monster would touch you like that. It wasn't even like, like a conversation. I, I don't even remember even being in the room. I don't even remember sharing my account. Stacey. You know what I mean? So that's like, like, I see that history and I experienced that and I've seen it in other situations. I mean, even to be more clear at work, White women would, it happened twice, they would lose their clue on me and I was villainized for it. I was villainized. That's honestly, this is like really getting into the tea. That's like one of the reasons I quit because I was like, I can't be safe here. It was like little situations where I'm like, oh, what's the schedule like? And then someone who had been so stressed out just loses it on me. And then everyone's like, huh, why are you being this and that? And I was like, this is not a safe place for me. I did not know that. Yeah. And I told them this was like so juicy, but I, just to be full disclosure, I they asked me to come back and do things with it. And I was like, is this a safe place where I can like, you know, something is someone's treating me poorly? Like, will that, will there be a way for me to like be safe here? And they were like, oh, sorry. And then no, she stood up. And then when one of the ladies left, they called me and they were like, it should be a safer place now. No. Yeah. So for me, I was like, ah, oh, it, it's just like, I don't have, you know, we talk about what's legal and what's not. And like, unfortunately, what's legal doesn't mean anything because at the end of the day, I'm, you know, like I could still be hurt. I could still lose my job. I could still be villainized and like the ramifications that come with that. And then the situation of Emmett Till killed, you know, I've been like, yeah. And like most of the mistreatment I've experienced was at the hand of white women, especially like in a professional setting, which is wild. I am so, so sad to hear that. So how do you, I do want to pause here for a minute and just ask you, like, I would imagine it would be hard to not have that color in your 
perception like um, and you can say it does oh for sure of course like, like my experiences of course yeah. but i think it's like i also have and i'm very fortunate i also have a lot of amazing white women in my life <laughs> like seriously though, i know would go to bat for me <laughs> and i even have times where i talk to friends that i worked with and this is actually probably really interesting because i talked to friends that i worked with white women at you know like that place i worked at and they were oblivious and they were shocked and they were he didn't want me to experience that and i did harbor some resentment for a while about like didn't even stand up for me or come to bat for me um and you know what made it actually help me was realizing that they were experiencing sexism and i didn't stand up to come to bat for them and i was like why not and i looked at like my lack of awareness i wasn't experiencing it like whatever you want to say and so i it gave me a lot of sympathy to be like oh crap this is more complex than i realized um yeah there's the topic of there we go right there wow i, I never told about this did i no no i did not notice oh my gosh yeah. okay that but this is the conversation like we said with bell hook saying yeah white women and black men are sometimes the oppressed and sometimes the oppressors and we both this is what we talk about like mm-hmm. what are our blind spots and we can have the humility and the strength to be able to to be like no really i want you to tell me and then be able to hear it and acknowledge them and learn and make changes if we need to make changes but that's hard because even at the same time that i'm like i was mistreated and i was what i was also a part of the system that mistreated women mm-hmm. i was also a part of that and that is like so like embarrassing and so shameful to claim but i also feel like it's really important Mm -hmm. because in this world at a time when we're trying so hard to be like no i'm right or like i don't like we have to sit with this Mm -hmm. right yep yeah no and that's how i feel too in the ways that i've experienced that i still experience privilege too and just like looking reading these accounts of what were happening to these people that my racial group was doing to these it's horrible like the guilt and the shame that comes up that i need to process and work through and the privilege that i experience where i like you said like i might not even be aware of what other people are experiencing but that's these conversations are so important yeah we have yeah and i want to get once again want to be like we talked about ella baker criticizing martin luther king and it's like it's not about who's good or bad yeah right and wrong it's right about sitting with the nuance yep and being able to like sit with your own crap i think and be like how am i figuring into systems and it's not enough and i believe our friend latha talks a ton about this it's not enough to be like i'm gonna change the world by doing this movement it's like you have to sit with your own stuff yep like i have to sit with the fact that i was like participating in like sexist organizations and systems like Mm -hmm. yeah and me with racist ones too yeah yeah oof Oof. look at us look at us been tacky at all. So I I would say of all the there's many many factors to this, but two more quickly two more factors that I identified again in the journals that were written by these people. This isn't just me guessing, but they talked to, black women talked about white centric beauty standards and how that impacted them. That like in the media, in commercials, just everywhere you went, even colorism within the black community, that it was always like quote-unquote better to have fairer skin or to have straighter hair or whatever and so 
coming together with white women as a 20-year-old, for example, a 20-something with, they were mostly black men and there were some white men, but it was deeply wounding to these young black women when black men would choose to date white women and black women would talk about their like, we're so strong, we're perceived as strong, almost like androgynous, like we're not real women because we're so strong and we've always had to work and we're super hard workers and we're like matriarchs. There's this myth of matriarchy and whatever. Mm -hmm. And so black men would be like, oh, I totally respect you, but I would never date you. And they would date white women instead. And this was a huge source of pain. Does that resonate at all? I hear that still to this day. Really? Yeah, I mean, especially like the effect of like the Eurocentric beauty standards and how black people often do not genetically fall into those standards. And like it affects everyone, right? And like you hear it now, like I think you mentioned it in your paper about book paper, which they call it. Oh, paper. Your um, academic brilliance where like a black woman with a white man was not seen in the same regard because white men have always had they claimed everything, mm-hmm. right? But black men um, being with a white woman was where it really threw things off. And I, you hear a lot of things in the community about, in the black community about like, like there's so, it feels like there's so few strong like black men that when they do marry a white woman, it's like, what about, like, what about black women who are like fighting for their lives out there, showing up boldly, like very, strong people and then once again it's like that pedestal of like oh black women can take anything they can handle anything and sometimes almost feels like an excuse to make their burden heavier in some senses but yeah you see that a lot i mean my brother came under fire in high school for dating a white woman but it was also the fear of you know like what is she gonna what if she claims anything you're automatically in danger and like we see that example because it would like enrage white men to see black men and white women together and so it made it so dangerous not just dangerous for the black men but also felt like a slight to black women it was just like adding on like black women couldn't win mm-hmm. i look at that thing about them like it's women's fault to like who they like and love who they love but this is complex and got like history behind it yeah that's so interesting that 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 you still see that oh oh yeah huh oh yeah quick google search go find like yeah, sometimes they give like celebrities like a hard time. Like, uh, do you remember Sister Sister? Sister Sister. Yeah. yeah. Two black twins. Yeah. Celebrating birth. Yeah. From that show, it's Tian Tamara Mari. One of them married a white man, and cause she gets given a hard time for that. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't come close to like the hard time black men are given for married white women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And whether it's valid or not, which seems weird to even say, it's just like, that is what you see yeah well and like you said there are deep roots deep historical roots to this because like you said white men had claim on black women's bodies from the time of enslavement right but then i guess the pedestalization of the white woman comes from patriarchy right because it's the white man going like oh she's an angel she's delicate she's untouchable so yes don't treat her as an equal but we have to protect her and so i saw her Yes, exactly. But then, yes, the the trope, the racist trope of the black man who wants to like the animal that wants to ravage. Yes, sleep. Yeah, take his property, right? Take his property. Who has? And she's like this pure virgin property. 
And that's why a white woman. Ew, property. Yeah, which was. And so, but that's why the white woman can wield that. And they, we talk about her having access to the forces of white supremacy. So like we talked, like you just mentioned with Christian Cooper and Amy Cooper in Central Park, all she has to say is a black man is threatening me. And the, the structural forces of white supremacy, she can just be like, damsel in distress. And then everybody comes at her. So that dynamic was very much at play in the 60s in SNCC. And because they're in rural Mississippi, like where the KKK reigned, right? So pervasive. Pervasive. Every aspect of government. Yeah. Like law enforcement. Like, ooh. Yes. And they were encountering these people all the time. So this was contributing to fissures too, because like we were saying, these are young people who are dating each other. And you get situations where I'm thinking of a specific couple, a black man and a white woman dating. And then he doesn't want to acknowledge that he's dating a white woman. So sometimes it's like a badge of honor. This is in the civil rights movement. This is in SNCC. Yes. Sometimes it's a a badge of honor of like, I'm dating a white woman. But sometimes it was like, I'm not supposed to be or like that would diminish him, his reputation. So sometimes he would like pretend he didn't know her in the daytime basically like in the day when they're with their friends when they're with their co-volunteers in SNCC he would pretend he didn't know her they would they would get together at night he's coming to that from all of the historical context that he's coming from as a black man she's coming and I know this again this is a specific couple I'm thinking of she's a northern white woman she's coming to it and like you're gonna sleep with me and then pretend you don't know me Chris you're sexist is there a little bit of sexism there? Maybe, but they're ju- you can just see how these two different people are approaching it. And their experiences are so valid. Yeah, I guess so. Yes. Like if yes. she feels that way, like yeah. you wouldn't feel that way. Yeah. Especially with us. He's using. Without knowing. Right. And then. Yeah. Yeah. And there were, I should say too, there were strict rules that you are not supposed to like date each other and interracial, even like showing affection especially a black man with a white woman. I mean, white women endangered black men anywhere they went. In fact, white women were told, like, if you need, if you had to ride in a car, like a desegregated car, like with your buddies, white women needed to lay down on the floor of the car with blankets over them. Because if there was a KKK member police man who saw a black man with a white woman, he pulls them over, that black guy can disappear. So... There's a story that I, I read in your paper, part of it, where it talks about who was in jail. Yeah, Terrell Sherrod. He was in jail, black man in jail. Yeah. For for demonstrating. Again, he was just, he was a snick guy who was at a demonstration. Yes. And they'd him. never heard him. They'd never like physically heard him, but they did have him in jail. And one day the guards came in and just like beat him up, right? Yeah. And he was like, what is going on? And then a guard came in later when he's recovering and kicked him in the stomach or head or something and said like, that's what you get, you son of a bee for trying to marry a white woman and he was like what and he found out later one of his compatriots who was a white woman thought if she could get more access to him if she just told them she was his wife because they wanted to visit him and right. support him right and it in fact just endangered him exactly and he still has those scars i think later he was talking about it that's wild yeah right so just these again yes these white women who are approaching it Again, because she was, she thought she was doing something nice by visiting him in jail, and they were good friends. Yeah, and she got him terribly beaten. This like, happened a lot. I would never be like, "What a bad idea," but like the result. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and it was on her to know that because they did train these 
kids. They did train these people and they said like it was called the anti-lynching code. Oh, you're not allowed to date because you can get, you know, your best friend or your boyfriend that you really love. You can get him killed if you like just these kind of well-meaning but misguided and uninformed things. So tensions of like, yeah, black men and their lived experience coming into this, creating tensions with white women and their lived experience and then black women. And I can see how these fissures are creating like, yes. Exactly. There's like a point. Did it come to that? And that's that's where we get to Waveland. And I'll just say for I'll add one thing about what white women were bringing. And I kind of implied this earlier where they were bringing kind of a, a lot of these white women were coming from the north. Some were some were southern. And I will say Casey Hayden is one to look up if you want as a white woman, a real hero, like an anti-racist white woman who really kind of got it. She's from the South. She's from the South. She's oh. Texan. And so she grew up in segregation. She understood the codes of the, the South. Yeah. Oh. And she said, she's like, I took jobs behind the scenes at SNCC. I did office work. If I was ever in a situation where I was with black men, I was under a blanket so no one could see me. She would never, ever endanger her fellow SNCC workers. But a lot of white women came in later for what was called Freedom Summer. And so they hadn't had the time to train all these. Good time. Yeah. Like, all this thing like, yo, the, some people are going to Cancun. I'm going to Freedom Summer. Yeah, yeah. Well, there were a lot. And there were a lot that came from like Stanford and from the Ivies on the East Coast. Really wonderful white people. A huge, um, huge group of white people came down for Freedom Summer to do voter registration. Because there were a lot of counties, especially in Mississippi. Stacy, there was, I mean, it like make, made me cry. There was like Lowndes County in Mississippi. 80% black. And I was going to say, guess how many people, guess how many black citizens were registered to vote in 1964? It was 80% black. Zero. 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 Zero people. I feel like you see effects of that today. You do. The voter suppression was so bad. They would, so these SNCC volunteers, they just needed more people. And they would go and like go door to door. Like Mormon missionaries that go door to door and say, do you realize, like, are you registered to vote? So many of them did not even know they had the right to vote. It was so badly suppressed for so many generations. They didn't know they had the right to vote. So these are, they needed SNCC volunteers to register people to vote. That was one of their big initiatives. Uh, They recruited and they debated whether they wanted to bring a bunch of white kids in. It was already debated. Yes, for the exact reasons we're talking about. So a bunch of white people come down. One detail that was very touching to me was of the, I think they had about a thousand kids come down. Kids, they're like college students, right? A thousand white volunteers flooding into SNCC. Half of them were Jewish. Oh. Of those white volunteers. Why? Why do you think that is? So, yeah, that was my question. And then I like suddenly like, oh, oh, my gosh, it had only been, what, 15 years since the Holocaust. And the like that generational like inheriting that fine china of oppression. Yes. Mobilized to. To help others. Isn't that beautiful? That is. And if you look at the mentors, too, of SNCC, like a lot of them were rabbis. A lot. So much like hugely outsized number of Jewish participation in the civil rights movement. I think they were they were like the United States was like two percent Jewish, and yet half the volunteers were Jewish. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, go off. Yeah, I love uh, showing up. Yeah, they, yeah, they showed up. So anyway, 
But white women were also bringing, I mentioned those two books, um, The Feminine Mystique and I should say it in my order. I mentioned those two books earlier, that there were two books that had changed the world, at least for Northern white women. And that was The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir that had been written in 1949, published in the early 50s. And then The Feminine Mystique came out in around the time that SNCC was forming also. Interesting. So these women, I actually, The Feminine Mystique came out in 63, I think. But by Freedom Summer, with all these white women, a lot of them had gone to Harvard. A lot of them had experienced terrible sexism. Mm. And they had read these feminist works that had just hit the scene, were causing a huge like feminist awakening among white women. So they're coming into SNCC or in, into their civil rights work already like sitting in this sitting doing on it man, yeah. ready to, for something to change ready for something to change and they had the lenses on from having read feminist philosophy of like that's not fair that's sexist how dare you treat me like that to men and where better to like make a difference than in the place that's like championing like equality that's a great way of looking at it it is and and for a place like snick that claimed to be egalitarian and claim to be like, no, this is a flat democratic structure. There's no hierarchy here, right? This is, th that would be the way to do it in the place where you could do it. And they did say that that was true. Like of all of the organizations that existed at the time in the early 60s, that was the safest place to do it. However, I think here's the thing that brings us to the Waveland Conference where the cracks are really starting to widen is we already talked about kind of what black women are bringing and what black men are bringing. Women are bringing this feminist consciousness. And if you think about it, like for a white woman, specifically from the North, but I guess any white woman, like her biggest pain point is sexism. And of course, she cares enough about racism to enter the civil rights movement, but she doesn't have personal experience with it. She hasn't had to protect any of the men in her life, right? She can criticize her dad for sexism without feeling like, but is he going to get lynched? No white woman has ever had to fear for the men in her family. And so she, you know, these white women are kind of, again, a little bit ignorant of what it means to criticize men. If you grow up in your life where you're like, my, my own uncle was, mm -hmm. and again, I'm thinking of actual accounts where like my uncle was lynched, right? These black women had members of their family who this had happened to and white women, I think, um, didn't really realize that. So they're coming in with these lenses of the biggest pain point is feminism and we're all sisters together. We have our womanhood in common. Oh, black and white. We're all in this together. Right. Exactly. Okay. So this brings them to Waveland where, as I said, this paper was written. It was anonymously submitted. Nobody knew who did it. Festo. The manifesto. We're back. We're back. We're back to the manifesto. Okay. And I should say there's way more context to SNCC was already really struggling because they because of a lot of different political things that were going on where they had really thrown in their weight with white allies who they said were going to help them and in the end kind of betrayed them. So those fissures were about way more than gender. Yeah, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of history that we don't even have time to go into, but they were starting to feel really by, betrayed by white allies and all of those well-meaning white volunteers already were causing a lot of problems, right, already. But so when those women wrote the 
manifesto, what we have in the in the record is they were four white women, but they were all white. And I have actually a copy. And the four white women were, were white. The four women were white. So it wasn't like we got women together of all places. Yeah. Let's get your voices, get your thoughts. Exactly. And one question I had that I never could answer, I looked everywhere, Stacey, and even in my interviews, nobody knew. Yeah, will you find it? Because actually, I really want to know. I wanted to know if they asked Black women to participate, because that would make it really different. That would change things. It would change everything. But they didn't. And so the effect of it was for white women, and when it was revealed that the authors of the manifesto were all white women, so it was anonymous. Right. So these are quotes and I'm just going to choose a couple of them. So here are a couple of points from the SNCC position paper. They said the SNCC staff was involved in crucial constitutional revisions at the Atlanta staff meeting in October. A large committee was appointed to present revisions to the staff. The committee was all men. Or it would say, although there were women in the Mississippi project who've been working as long as some of the men, the leadership group is all men. A fall 1964 personnel and resources report in the Mississippi Projects lists the number of people in each project. The section on Laurel, Mississippi lists not the number of persons, but three girls. So it would say like this man with the name, this man, this man, this man, this man by name, and then three girls. Or when they would list the name, they would put girl in parentheses, in parentheses after to designate. They didn't do that with the men. So it was like... Interesting. So there were a lot of, it seems to me, quite legitimate grievances that they were not being treated equally. And they compare it to race. And in the manifesto, they say... I could see how that would already start being like, so what side do you take? Yeah. Yeah. For a black woman to hear that, right? So they had written like, we were starting to feel our black sisters pull away from us already before Waveland. They were pulling away from us. The chasm was starting to grow between us, and we were desperate to mend the breach. So we wrote this manifesto about sexism, and then they were just puzzled, like, because the reaction of the Black women when this was read, they expected the Black women to be like, yeah, and they were just silent. And after that, again, there were many reasons why SNCC kind of started to dissolve. It was at the beginning. Yeah. These uh, this giant iceberg cracking into certain, yeah. Because I can almost see like black men, white women, black women, almost being like, oh, they call it the swing vote, but like this deciding factor in how this will swing. And I remember doing a, a and you can correct me on this. It's been so long ago when I was in, doing my undergrad. I was doing some like PR research, and every now and then we dive into different elements of like race and gender and stuff. And when it comes to like race, often um, black people identify first by their race mm-hmm. and then by the rest, even though we talk about it. It's not like, I'm not like a man who is black. I'm a black man. Like that is like integral to my identity. Wow. And so I can imagine women, black women having to decide, do you stand with women or black people? Mm-hmm. It's almost like the question and it's like. Yeah. And at the time, like if you... I mean, it just seems so obvious at the time, like, which is the greater like battle? Yes. Which is the bigger battle priority at the time? It's obviously race. It's obviously race. Like, this isn't the time to. And it's so crazy because, like, were they 
bad grievances? Was it wrong of them to have concerns with those things? Yeah, I don't think it was wrong for them to have those concerns. I think of Ella Baker. Yeah, and like, right. The way Ella Baker, and I, I don't know, maybe this isn't fair, but like, it seems like Ella Baker knew that it wouldn't help this so important cause to start in her like yes in her tensions yes. I don't even like framing it like that because it's not like it's not like they're trying to start drama. I mean, right? No, 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 no. They weren't. Yeah, starting- really like. Yeah, everything was on the table for discussion. That was the whole point of having the position papers of like air your grievances. We can talk about it, but they misjudged it. They miscalculated. And there was even here's a good example because uh, Ella Baker was black, and so she's in a different position, right? It's her dad and her son or her nephew that she's talking about. She's in a different position to be able to make those criticisms. Here's another one: Prathia Hall was at Waveland. She's a black woman. She's young. She was a, sn- a SNCC worker. And she was the daughter of a minister, and she herself was an incredible preacher. Mm-hmm. And she was years and years prior, and you'll this will be familiar immediately when I start saying this. She was asked to give the closing prayer, basically, but it kind of turned into a sermon when a church had been burned down. And it was a huge gathering when this church had been burned down. Young Prathia Hall goes to the front, this black minister's daughter, and she starts kind of preaching and she starts saying i have a dream that and then she said she continues and then repeats the phrase i have a dream repeats the phrase i have a dream yep and dr king was in the audience that day in the congregation this is before the march on washington yep so to your point about black women having to make choices she said that he acknowledged privately to her that he got that idea from her sermon. Yep. But he never credited her. That's a, you held on to that plot twist. Whoa. Yeah. He never credited her publicly. And she just said, you know, it's okay. Like it, he, he was, you know, he kind of like, he asked me for, I don't know if she said he asked her for permission, but he kind of acknowledged like, yeah, I kind of got that idea from your sermon. But he never credited her publicly, and she chose to kind of just graciously say, you know what, this is part of a for the greater good. This is a movement that's bigger than me. And Prathia Hall was at Waveland when this position paper was so, read, right? Wow. Or these white women were like, you put girl after our names, and you formed a committee without us and didn't even ask us, you know? And so these black women are like, yeah, why is this the priority right now? You know, so. Oh, that's tough. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. So this. That's one of those. Do you have it? Sorry. Just the nuances of sitting with it. I'm like, because of course they're not invalid. Like their experiences are invalid. And like, like that is so valid to feel that, to want that change. But Mm -hmm when you look at like the strategy or like the goal or the focus oh that's tough yeah it's tough and they do say in the paper later like that they make the comparison of like they're both caste systems the patriarchal caste system privileges men over women just like the race caste system privileges white over black and just like you don't like being called boy by a white man this is in the paper 
we don't like being called girl by men, huh, right? So they make this one-to-one comparison of like sexism is like racism. And they say it's every bit as much as painful. And I could see the strategy of like, I'm going to speak to something that you really understand. But I also see that it feels like they've like, it's pinned it against each other. Right. Like compare the two. Right. Oh, wow. So then to take it through to today... SNCC, basically, the black and white together, it was so utopian and so beautiful, and they schism. And so Stokely Carmichael with Black Power, it basically breaks apart, SNCC does. And you get these heart-wrenching accounts of, like, people who are best, best friends who don't speak to each other for decades. Oh, whoa. People who were dating and loved each other don't speak to each other for decades it is a huge breach a huge breach and i'm again i'm not saying it was all because of the waveland paper but the waveland paper did not help it really did backfire you then have in snick the black workers in snick sing to white people go north and fight your own oppressors in those exact words they were they dismissed all of the white workers from snick just send them back north all of them, there were no white people allowed in SNCC after that. They allowed the Zellners. There were this kind of like older than them couple, white couple that they allowed to kind of stay on as Like they're cool. Though. Yeah. And with Casey Hayden, one of the guys said to her, like, when we said white people should leave and fight your own oppressors, we didn't mean you, Casey. So there was like noticeable that she was showing up differently. She was showing up differently, but she was one of the authors. She was one of the authors of the paper. And you what a plot twist. So you see her, yeah. They should yeah. make an HBO show, Amy. I think it's so interesting. I, I'm so like, glad you think it's yeah, interesting. It's so complex. But, it's yeah. So nuanced. Juicy. Juicy. That would be a big reveal in the season reveal. Yeah. So there you do see all of these women reacting very differently. And I followed each of these white authors to see like how they talked about it afterwards. And some of them kind of like doubled down on it and they're like, no, it was a big problem. Casey, you can see her like really like, I don't even really remember writing that paper, which I think she didn't because really it did not get any attention at first. I think it was maybe awkward for a little while, but then she really tried to do repair work afterwards. But they did all go to the North and they started fighting in different ways, like against poverty and against racism in the North, stuff like that. But more harm was done when, like I said at the beginning, and this kind of wraps up this kind of the arc of this part of the story when these white historians these white women historians dug up the paper right and this is how i got interested in it is because i found first the first books i found were by white women historians who told that story there was a sit-in that happened there was a feminist manifesto that was written those SNCC men, those black men, were so sexist that that is what caused the women's lib movement in the 70s. They were telling this story, and I read it and believed it. It was only when I started digging in more that I was like, wait, the schism for me, the more compelling story isn't what happened between women and men. It's what happened between white women and black women. Why did that happen? Because you think if it was just a question about sexist, was it why did black women... White, Stay on board. Right. And why did they stop speaking to the white women? Like, why can I not find anything that black women said? My sources in my paper are from emails much later that were so hurt, so hurt and so angry. And then, like I said, even black women 
black women were so hurt by it still and so mad. Yeah. It does feel really interesting to say like, like even the concept of like, hey, we're speaking up for people and not to involve people. Like, like that's almost like didn't acknowledge that there could be different lived experience. Yes. And so patronizing, right? For them, for white women to speak universally for quote unquote women. And that's why I so badly wanted to know, like, did you even ask? You said you're best friends with these black women. Why weren't they huddled around the typewriter by the mimeograph machine with you? Why? Why it's not? Probably could have gone different. They would have gone so differently. And we might be feeling those differences now. You know what I mean? Because then the history would have been written differently. And just that example of like of white women marching into a situation with their the second sex under their arm and being like calling out situations that they don't really understand and vilifying men of color who are already themselves so vulnerable in society. It's just white women keep doing it. Like to think about is it were they right or wrong? Did that lead to like a movement that has done good? Like, yeah. I mean, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure, sure. Yes and no, yeah, right? It's like also like, wow. And it feels like were they right or wrong for that feels way more compl- like simplified versus like what information were they lacking? They're they're presenting a manifesto about involving more people really making egalitarian and they lacked involving other women. Right, right. Oof. And you- Which even then feels like kind of weird for me to be like, well, this is how you're not going about it, right? Oh, man. Well, and maybe not even to your point, not just involving them. Maybe what should have happened. Not maybe. Actually, this is where I land on this since now I'm thinking about it. I think what they could have done, because there were some legitimate grievances, is to say to go to to. (laughs) It was a black led movement. It was black and white together. It was a black led movement. So they should have gone to. Ella Baker, or they could have gone to Prathia Hall or Ruby Doris Smith or all of these women, Muriel Tillinghast. They could have gone to Gwendolyn Robinson. So many black women who would have been like, yeah, that is a problem. And then they could have said, do you think this is a priority that we should talk about and followed their lead? Right. That's what I think maybe should have happened instead is like we're the supporters here. We're guests here. Actually, it is not our role. To start renovating the house and cover that we're a guest in. That we're a guest in. I guess my question for you is okay, so like now what? How is that relevant to us now? How do we take what happened there and like apply it to us these days? What do we, you know? Yeah. What is that? Yeah. I mean, that's what, that's my big takeaway. That's my big takeaway after this paper is to know when you're in a supporting role. Mm. You know what I mean? And I do think for white women, and this is still, and when I did season three last year of the podcast, over and over and over again, no matter where I was interviewing women, whether it was in the Middle East or Africa or South America or Asia, no matter where it was, again, I was met. People were very nice to me, but there was a big dose of skepticism of like, yeah, I'll do the episode, but what's your goal here? And like, because my podcast is called Breaking Down Patriarchy, are you just another white feminist who's going to come in here and criticize Arab men because Arab women are so oppressed? Are you going to come in in here and talk bad about, you know, my husband, my uncle by talking about machismo 
you white woman who doesn't understand what it is to live here and be impressed. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Ongoing. There is still that tension. There is still, I have to come in and I should. And this is what I learned is like, I am here for you to teach me and let me know how I can be a support to you. I'm an expert in white Mormon feminism because that's what I know about. And I do that gently and carefully too because a lot of people, you know, people I love are white Mormon men. You know what I mean? So I know the nuances of that. I care. I have a vested interest in that community. That's the only context, in my opinion, in which I could be a leader or I actually know what I'm talking about. In every other context, I come in and say, is there anything I could do to help you? And I don't have the right or I'm in no place to to make any judgments in other contexts. That's what I think. What about you? What are some... I, just, I mean, I'm just like sitting with that. I think that's like knowing when you're supporting role um, or even just like the like whole analogy of like, if you're a guest at a house, don't start renovating it. Even if you feel like this, this leaky roof, you like maybe get some, do some more research, get some more background or like know how to like support. I dated this guy. One of the first guys I dated, Craig guy, was a huge humanitarian, but like traveled to different countries and like find ways to serve the people. And I remember him kind of criticizing people who just like show up and build a school, like yeah. build a library. And I was like, why, what do you, I was like, why, why would you, why is that bad? And he's like, one thing I learned is that people will tell you what they want you to do, what they need. And if you show up and start establishing priorities, you can really mess up the system. You can like disregard the culture. And he said, he saw libraries getting built that they left. People high-fived each other, took pictures with a bunch of brown kids, left and no books were put in. It was just a building. For the white kids to feel better. Yeah, to feel better. And so he would go to places, I should really respect this, and he would just live there for three months and like 200 people be involved and then find out how he could be a supporting role. And I think that like really correlates where I'm like, oh yeah, sounds like these women, well-meaning, were trying to like renovate a house that they didn't even like, that wasn't even theirs in a sense. And it maybe created more drama. Even if it was like, necessary changes that needed to happen it was like yeah 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 that's intense yeah it makes me want to be like where am i where do i need to play a more supporting role or where do i need to sit with some of these aspects of like being uh a figure into like playing a part or role in sexism Mm -hmm. interesting well we'll keep talking about it we you and i will keep talking about it puddling through all of this but yeah, good stuff. I felt so privileged to be here. Like you always interview like academics and like oh really at humans, and then I'm like, I cracked a joke once. <laughs> no, thank you so much for being here. I so value the way you think. I'm so grateful for all the conversations. We- yes, of course. Duh. <laughs> I love our conversations. I learned so much from you, and I just love you, Stacey. It was so great for like taking the time and like teaching me, and like even you're so patient and like. You put up with like me bringing up weird pushback questions. No. I just say yeah, I really appreciate it. And I hope um, I'm really curious to know if people will respond to this. Yeah. Your comments, share your thoughts below. Hopefully we can have some really civil discourse and dialogue. Yeah, for sure. And and check out Instagram too, because people can, you know, make comments and we'll have, we'll post some 
quotes from the conversation and and we'll also post some of the books because like we said we, we like touched just the tip of the iceberg of this story there's so much more and there's so many great books and super recommend also just learning more about these incredibly courageous civil rights activists who really risk their lives to create change that we take for granted today i'm just so so moved by their sacrifices and their courage so yeah anyway Thanks, Stace. Thanks for having me. And that wraps up today's episode. Before I go, I want to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our editing and production and Aubrey Iyer for our social media. And as always, I want to thank you listeners for being here. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel, Breaking Down Patriarchy, which features short, super entertaining videos that were created specifically to be able to share with friends and family members. Huge thanks to Ralph Blair and Aubrey Iyer for their genius work on that series. And if you want to show your appreciation for this excellent ad-free content, the most helpful thing you can do is to forward this episode to your friends and family and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. These reviews really do help people find the podcast, and the more people listen, the greater the impact of this grassroots movement to break down the patriarchal structures in our institutions and our relationships and build egalitarian structures in their place. Thanks again for joining me, and make sure to tune in next time for another fascinating episode on Breaking Down Patriarchy.